Hey everyone, good morning. So glad that you're joining us, whether you live in the Toronto area or beyond, whether you attend Sanctus regularly or not, you're most welcome. And welcome to our brand new summer series. Symbols, think about it. They are everywhere. We live in a world filled with symbols and images. Now, many are universally understood. Others, you only understand them if you live in a culture that sort of uses them. But here's the point. Symbols shape life. They shape behavior. They communicate belief. Symbols move people. They stop people. They inspire people to good, bad, boring, or evil. It's that phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. It was the philosopher A.N. Whitehead that once said, real symbols have the power to change history. Another wrote this, symbols are the basis of every single culture. A symbol is an object, or it's a word, or it's an action that stands for something with no natural relationship, which is culturally defined. If, if I show you the symbol, right, it's a stop sign, right? You, you see the stop sign and you know, I need to stop. What about this symbol? Most, I hope, all of us would have a negative reaction to the Nazi symbol. Immediately, Hitler might come to your mind or the, the Holocaust. But some others might go, well, actually, I know that that was a religious symbol before the Nazis, and it was used in Buddhism and Hinduism as a sign of good fortune, and actually, up till the 1930s, was used globally. If I show you this, three X's, you go, oh, pornographic. If I show you this, an emoji, we use them all the time. It's how we speak in tongues online in the 21st century. Now, what is amazing is that our faith, if you are a Christian, is filled with symbols, and most of them are very old, established probably within the first three to 400 years of our faith, and they were used to express the Christian faith to other Christians and also define and invite non-Christians or seekers into the faith. But many people within many churches and also here at Sanctus don't know what they are, don't know what they mean, and many people are like, well, why does it even matter? Isn't that just a boring history thing? So this summer, we're going to explore all the key historic Christian symbols. Where they came from, what do they mean? How do they point us and build our faith up? And how do they also invite other people into a relationship with Jesus? See, this series is gonna be really fun and really good. This is going to connect us to the global church, which uses these symbols all the time. It's going to connect us to the historic church, which is already alive with Jesus in heaven. And this is going to refresh you again and again, week after week, with the good news all summer long. You might be a Christian, but you need to be refreshed by the gospel, just like everyone else. And by the way, if you're a seeker, or you're a skeptic, or you belong to another faith, or you've got the title Christian, but you're not truly a follower... Through these symbols, you're going to be able to see and understand what Christianity is, what it's not, and what you're being invited into. But remember this. We might start with an image, but the images are only doors. They're actually not the thing. It's the person they represent, the person you can actually meet that makes all the difference. This came home to me when I was in high school. I had a teacher, I think it was an OAC. That's grade 13 for some of you who don't know that. I wish we still had it. And I remember sitting with him. He says, oh, I, I know you're a pretty, you know, hardcore Christian. I said, yeah, I suppose I am. He said, oh, I love church. I said, really? I, I didn't think you were a Christian. He says, oh, I, I'm not really a Christian. He says, I love church and I love going to church and I, I love the stained glass windows and I love the smell of the place and I love the, the music. And I said, what about Jesus? Well, not so much about him. 
In other words, he loved the symbols, but not the person they represented. And so that's what's really important as we discover our history. The symbols are important. They're door-opening moments, but they're actually not the thing. So this summer, we're going to explore the cross and the pelican and the Jesus fish and the Cairo and the dove and the anchor and the lamb of God and the peacock and the four beasts of the gospels and the alpha and omega. Some of you are like, peacock and pelican? Yep, hold on. Now, we're going to start today with one symbol many of us have seen and many of us know. In our culture, we tend to see them on the back of bumpers of cars. It's what we call the Jesus fish. Now, in response, many, at least here in North America, atheistic evolutionists have responded by adding legs to their fish and putting Darwin's name, and then it gets really intense, and sometimes the Darwin fish is eating the Christian fish, and the bumper battle goes on. Sometimes, if you see the Christian version of it, you'll see these Greek words in the middle, and you might not even know what they are. But what does that Jesus fish mean? When did we start using it? Why did we start using it? Why does it matter? And just as a side note, have you noticed many people that have the Jesus fish tend to give you the middle finger first? I'm just saying, that's another sermon. But, you know, maybe we should have that conversation too. Okay, this symbol is still making news today. Just a few weeks ago on the BBC, there was a conversation about this Jesus fish. Caravaggio's famous 17th century masterpiece, The Supper at Emmaus, you can see it here which I've seen many times. It's on display in the National Gallery in London. And it's about Jesus talking after he's resurrected to these two men. Now, if you see in the picture, there's a wicker basket with fruit on it. And only recently did art historians sort of focus in on it because the, the basket was falling apart. That was painted by the painter. But what they didn't realize till now is it's actually the Jesus fish. It's actually the secret symbol of our faith, right in the middle of this masterpiece. So why was it hidden in this art piece, and why was it hidden originally? Well, this symbol started being used around 200 AD. That's like 170 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And to understand it and why it's amazing and helpful, we need to actually get to its name. It's not called the Christian fish or the Jesus fish. It's just called fish. In ancient Greek, New Testament Greek, fish in Greek is ichthus. That's those Greek words sometimes you see in it. And Christians chose the word fish, ichthus, on purpose because it forms uh, an acronym. Each letter of the word fish in Greek, the very first letter was used to spell out this phrase, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So that, that acronym allowed Christians to confess who Jesus was fully. Think about it. Jesus is the King of the Jews. He's the Christ. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the King of the Jews, and he's the King of Kings. And why is he that? Because he's Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And as I've preached before, to have the DNA of God means you are God. There's, the, there's only one being that has that DNA. When early Jews heard other Jews start confessing that Jesus was not only Messiah, but the Son of God, they became enraged because they knew that was a claim of being God himself. That's why Jesus' best friend, John, started his gospel like this in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, beside God, and the word, oh, was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. 
So ichthus, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Jesus is God, Jesus is King, Jesus is the only true King, He's the only incarnation of God in human history, He's greater than every leader, greater than every prophet and thinker and politician, every person that's ever lived. And lastly, it says He's Savior. Jesus saves us from our sins. Jesus saves us from death. Jesus saves us from the power and the possession of the devil. Jesus saves us. That's why Peter said this in one of the very first Christian sermons in Acts 4.12, saving, salvation, is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. So that little fish symbol and the acronym they use confesses all of this. But there's more. The fish became the very important first secret symbol of our faith. Ever seen one of those movies that takes place in the United States in the 1930s when prohibition was happening, when alcohol was banned, and you'd walk up to this door and you'd knock and it was a speakeasy, a secret bar, and someone would open a little slit and you needed a password to get in to the bar? Well, actually, this symbol was the very first secret password in Roman times to go to church when it was illegal to be a Christian. This is the secret QR code of, of 200 AD. Now you might be saying, oh really, it was a secret thing? So the early Christians didn't have it on the back of their chariots and carts beside the other bumper sticker like Rome or bus? No, 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 not at all. It was secret. So then you say, well, when did early Christians use this symbol? Here's how one person said it. Greeks and Romans and many other pagans used the fish symbol before Christians. Hence the fish, unlike say maybe the cross, attracted very little suspicion, making it a perfect secret symbol for persecuted Christians. When threatened by Rome in the first centuries after Jesus, Christians used the fish to mark meeting places to worship and also meet, uh, to mark Christian tombs and to distinguish Christian friend from foe. According to one ancient story, when Christians would meet a stranger on the road, they would actually draw one half of the Christian fish in the dirt with their toe. And if the stranger drew the other half, they knew, oh my goodness, you're my brother in Jesus. You're my sister in Jesus. They're in good company. So that current bumper sticker mentality that we have today started like that. But then we got to ask the question, but why the symbol of a fish? Was it just the acronym that made sense? Well, no, no, there's so much more. Early Christians used the symbol of a fish at first secretly, and then of course publicly, because it appeared time and time again in the ministry of Jesus. First, Jesus calls his followers to become fishers of men, fishers of women, fishers of children, of people. We see this in the earliest gospel, in the gospel of Mark. Now, you might not know this, but Mark's readers are living in the generation right after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Most of his audience are not Jews, and they were either thinking about becoming Christians or had already become followers of Jesus. And so, as one said, the function of Mark's gospel was not to prove that Jesus was really the Son of God, nor was it simply to offer sort of biographical information about Jesus. Rather, it was to, listen, engage the reader in the unfolding story of Jesus from Nazareth, from Galilee so that we too might be caught up in his message and be challenged to believe that neither demonic powers nor brutal rulers ultimately triumph over Jesus or us. So listen to how Mark begins, and it's all going to connect to this fish symbol. Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Can you already see the connection to the acronym? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and what is this all contained in? The word gospel. Gospel is a churchy word, but it just means joyous or important message or good tidings. The word was used by Romans all the time to celebrate the birth of their emperors. In 9 BC, they celebrated the birth of Augustus by inscribing these words into stone. The birthday of the God emperor was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings or was good news. This has been proclaimed on his account. So think about this. For Romans, it's a historic thing. But to a Jewish person, when they heard the phrase good news, it was a religious term used to talk about the future salvation that was to come. So watch this. One said, for, for a Roman, when they heard the phrase good news, it was retrospective, a reflection on a joyous thing that has already taken place. For the Jew, it's a forward-facing thing. It's the announce, announcement of the beginning of a time of salvation. And here's the amazing thing. The gospel... The good news takes on both meanings because it's anchored and overshadowed in the past. It has effect in the present. It's saying the future has now broken into the present, and yet there's a full salvation still to come. And this good news, watch this, is not found in a religious movement. It's not found in political revolution. It's not found in a new invention. It's not found in a new philosophy or science or technology. It's shockingly found not in a moral code, but in a person, he was and is and always will be Jesus. The good news is not a message. The good news is a living person. And Jesus says, believe, put your trust in the good news. Me. That's why Mark's first words were, trust in, rely upon, adhere to the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the good news. And the fish represented all of that. That's why they used it. And then in the same chapter, you can see how they were inspired so early. In the same chapter, down in verse 16, it says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. So become a real follower, and like me, you will introduce the world that really has no contact with God, even if they're deeply religious, to God himself. And I'll make you fishermen in a brand new way. Now, of course, he was using their everyday job to help them understand their new calling. But there's so much more going on here. Maybe you've grown up in your church your whole life and you've heard fishers of men. But what we forget is in the Old Testament, fishing for people was not a good thing. In the Old Testament, when you see the phrase fisher of men or fishing for people, it was connected to God's final judgment, the destruct, like judgment. Ezekiel, Amos, Habakkuk have the image of God coming and judging people like a fisherman taking fish out. So here's the point. Though there is a divine wrath coming in the end where God will rightly judge all nations, Jesus is saying before that fishing event, actually, there's going to be another fishing event, and we get to show the world there's a second chance before it's too late. And then, of course, verse 18 is so famous. At once, they left their nets and followed him. With no hesitation, no reflection, they threw aside their nets, they left their life as they knew it, and they followed Jesus. They were willing to abandon even economic ties or family ties for something that was more important, God himself.
And as you read Mark and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the book of Acts and you read church history, Jesus calls people to follow. Fishermen, farmers, builders, executives, plumbers, admin assistants, scientists, IT consultants, teachers, politicians, stay-at-home moms and dads, librarians, the list goes on and on. Yet here, right here, we see what it takes to really follow Jesus as a disciple, not just as a Christian in name only or in tradition only or by ethnic history only. All people who've encountered Jesus are called into the way of fishing. You cannot be a Christian and not be involved in fishing for men and women. That's why the early church used the image of the fish. But there's another reason why the early Christians used this image. The image of the fish was used because Jesus was always doing amazing things in and around food. Like I said two summers ago, Jesus was a real foodie. Do you notice he's always at a party? He's always, always, always into the food. And I was saying two summers ago when we were talking about this food, it, it's a serious part of our life. If we don't have it, we die. We celebrate it as art. We have whole TV stations dedicated to it, the Food Network, and right, Beat Bobby Flay and the Barefoot Contessa and Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, and on Netflix, they're still ugly, delicious, and Chef Table, and on and on it goes. We love food as luxury. We use it as addiction to cover pain. And then we join support groups and gyms to overcome what we've eaten. Food is everywhere in our culture, in every culture, and it's real serious. We think about it, we dream about it, we're very opinionated about it, such as pineapple pizza. But there's an obvious thing about food we don't know very much about, or we don't reflect on, I should say, very much about, and it's this. After you eat a great meal, well, it's gone. And it goes in the place we don't really want to talk about it. In other words, you can have a two or three or $400 meal at a Michelin star restaurant or to go to the McDonald's drive-thru and the food has the same fate. Here today, gone tomorrow. And, and we want lasting things. We search, we long for eternity. We want e eternal things. And that is one reason why Jesus came in his day and our day to actually show us the emptiness of life. Our Lord actually wants to free us. Jesus has come to reveal, to show how defective our view of life and existence, things, and even eternity really is. And he comes to give food from heaven. He comes to reveal who he is and what he has to offer and, and why what he offer, offers never runs out. And it's interesting, fish are at the core of that revelation. Halfway through Jesus's ministry, he got real popular and there were massive, massive crowds. In John 6, 3, it reads like this. The crowds followed him, and then it says that Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples. And the Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, there's a myriad of Old Testament uh, images that would wash over the mind and the heart of the very first person ever hearing or reading this. Just like Moses, Jesus is now in the wilderness, and he's on a mountain, and he's about to give the word of God. And suddenly Jesus is going to do this crazy stuff with food, just like God did with manna and quail back then. Now he's going to provide food here. And oh, the Passover is coming. The Lamb of God will soon spill his blood to cover the sins of his people and force death to pass over. Jesus, the new Moses. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, the Word of God. Jesus doing miracles in the wilderness. The greater Moses starting a new exodus. All of it here. So, so far the disciples... They've seen Jesus do a lot of really wild stuff. Heal the sick, cast out demons, 
They, they've seen him proclaim the good news. They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him heal a nobleman's son from a distance. They've seen him heal a paralytic at a pool in Bethesda. And what is their response in this next moment? Huge crowd to their needs. There's an impossible moment that's gonna show up connected to food. They're gonna have faith, right? And courage and expectation. Jesus has got this because we've seen him do it so many times. No, 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 it's gonna be unbelief and the expectation of the same old. It says in verse five, when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this of Philip to test him. He already had in mind what he was going to do. See, this is a heaven-given moment, a test for Philip, a test of his faith, a test, would Jesus actually come through? Would he provide again like he's done every other time? This is never about humiliation. This is given to humble Philip, to bring Philip and others low. Why? Because Jesus wants to wean them off the greatest of sins that grieves the power of the Holy Spirit, the unnatural, miraculous work of God, self-sufficiency and unbelief. Pope Philip answered, as probably most of us would, it would take more than a half a year's wages uh, to buy enough bread for each one to have their bite. Not a meal, their bite. Uh, Philip, I love this, does not point to solution. He just points to the problem. Pessimism, cynicism, distrust, doom, gloom, negativity, minimal requirement, statistical pessimism. He doesn't look beyond his own means. This was all about the external evidence. This cannot be logically dealt with. <laughs> Jesus, I'm sorry, I know you're pretty amazing, you do pretty wild, amazing stuff, but this is not going to happen. See, by my calculations, this is gonna cost us between 30 and 60 grand, and we don't have 30 or 60 grand, and by the way, if we took all the Interact cards, and Visa cards, and MasterCard, and American Express, and got the Subway, and Tim's and Starbucks cards out, this would not make a dent for this crowd. Well, another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother spoke up and said, well, verse nine, here's a, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How, how far will this go with so many? Now this seems a little better than Philip, but not much. Andrew himself is baffled and overwhelmed and darkened. He just also looks at the inadequacy. So we got Jesus and we got a kid in five loaves and two fishes. Now, again, if you grew up in church, you got the wrong picture in your head. Barley loaves were the cheapest form of bread, inferior to wheat bread, and actually they would have been basically the size of a cracker. And the two small fish, and don't miss this fish thing because this is one of the reasons why the early Christians chose the symbol. They were dried fish or pickled fish. They were basically two sardines given for flavor. So the boy was poor. So he got five crackers and two sardines, not five sourdough loaves and two large salmon. Every time I grew up in, in Sunday school, I remember the pictures of the, the five loaves, the very large two fish. No, 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 this is nothing. So it's actually more and more and more impossible. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. There was 5,000 men there. Jesus says, okay, let's get them ready to eat. Now saying 5,000 men, means there are women and children there. So this crowd is at least 10,000 people. He says, anyone got the gift of administration? Okay, let's go, set up the tables. And Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks, he distributed them, he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, not a bite, and he did the same with the fish. Jesus blesses the food, he begins to break the nothing little snack, two, 
4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, 300, 500, 1,000, and it goes on and on, and it would have taken hours. When they'd all eaten enough, he said to his disciples, gather the, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So he feeds thousands of people in the most miraculous of ways, and then if you read the story, he just leaves. I'm out. The crowd is so blown away, they hunt him down, and they're like, you gotta tell us more. And as they get closer to Jesus, actually, he offends them. It says in John 6, 26, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're so earthly motivated. Physical food satisfies for a moment, but you need spiritual food to be sustained. Our, our spiritual needs and desires need to be satisfied. He says in verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures into eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Oh, I'm gonna give you this spiritual food. You just need to trust in me. And I've got my dad's backing who's God, and I'm God, and the Spirit of God is placed on me. And then the most important verse in the Bible is uttered right here. Most important. What must we do to do the work God requires? What kind of work do we need to do to get this bread and fish that comes from heaven? What do I need to give? What do I need to give up? What do I need to do? What do I need to bring to the table to get this? What godly works must I do? What things must I do to please God? How much credit do I need to build up so God will connect with me? How much is this going to cost? Again, the sinful heart only knows one place. Self. This question, appearing so amazing and so right, is spiritual blindness. It's a stubborn want of control. This is the darkness of our thinking. On the surface, it seems amazing. How deeply religious do we need to be? Jesus undercuts the whole worldview. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Wow. I used this two years ago. Let me do it again. One commentator said this. Suppose you invited a family over for Sunday afternoon dinner. It was a great meal. And you put in a huge spread for them. You fix their favorite meat. It's cooked just the way they like it. There's a big toss green salad, steaming baked potatoes, cheese sauce, a refreshing beverage. Uh, and then there's a big dessert at the end. What a dinner. And soon everyone's sitting back and they're patting their tummies. And suppose when it came for your friends or guests to leave, they get up and say, how much do I owe you for this meal? You'd probably say, you don't owe me anything. Why are you even asking that? And wonder if your guest responded or your best friend responded, we certainly absolutely do owe you something. We're not a bunch of freeloaders and then took 20, two or three $20 bills and threw them on the table and left. Just the mention of a payment would be a grievous insult in our culture. Throwing the money on the table, whoa, like friendship's probably over. And yet as human beings, we find ourselves going through life trying to pay for a free meal and in the process insulting God himself. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, the food that endures unto eternal life is freely given and freely received. It comes through belief. You don't pay for it. You just accept it. See, this is the amazing thing. The, the symbol of the fish tells us who Jesus is. And the symbol of the fish was chosen because it actually shows us how to meet him. But lastly, 
It was chosen out of the scriptures to remind us that Jesus actually, literally, for real, for real, came back from the dead. He wasn't spiritually resurrected. He was resurrected from the dead. John 21, 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But his disciples did not realize it was Jesus. And he called out to them, Hey, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. You're going to find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. And then in verse 9, when, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, and there was fish already on it. And there was some bread. There's the repeat again. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was Jesus. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. Now this was the, ready, third time Jesus appeared to disciples after he was raised from the dead. Well, as the movement starts growing, as Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and then Pentecost happens and the church begins to spread from Jews, Jews to Samaritans and Samaritans to Romans and then to Greeks and then it just keeps spreading. By the second century when this was used, it was used to remind us of one last thing, our baptism. Water baptism, of course, was primarily uh, immersion in the early church. And one person wrote, this created a parallel between fish and brand new Christian converts. It was the second century theologian Tertullian who put it this way, we little fishes, after the image of our ichthus, Jesus Christ, are born in the water. So you're like, wow, I, I now see why the early Christians chose that symbol. And now I understand the power of that symbol, even if it's on the back of a car. But so what? Well, I'm not asking everyone to go put a fish on the back of their car, by the way. But this is what you should do every time you see the symbol. I mean, this is literally what you should do. Every time you see the Jesus fish, you should not only know, you should confess these words. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and Savior. You should literally use it as a Holy Spirit prompting to confess the truth about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. Oh, and He is my Savior. You should do it every single time. Also, every time you see that symbol, you should know that Jesus has called you to fish and give out eternal life. Every time you see that Jesus fish symbol, that ichthus symbol, you should also be reminded that Jesus takes the normal and makes it unnormal. Jesus takes the impossible and makes it possible. He takes the nothing and he feeds the many. Every time you see that Jesus fish, you should say in your heart or out loud, my God still does impossible things. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Every time you see that Jesus fish, you should be reminded that Jesus actually came back from the dead. You should say, he's alive. Every time you see that Jesus fish, you should remind yourself you're part of a global family. And it's around the world, but it's also all, all, already in heaven. 
Every time you see that Jesus fish, you should reaffirm your baptism. You should go, yes, I, I believe all this, and I say amen. But here's the other thing you should do. Every time you see that Jesus fish, that should be a Holy Spirit moment to remind you to pray for the persecuted church. Remember, this symbol was invented by those who were trying to be faithful to Jesus in a brutal time. We're going to talk about that actually more next week with our next symbol. But here's what you should do. Never forget the most persecuted group of peoples on earth, according to multiple groups, including the United Nations, is Christians. They're the most targeted. We have had more people persecuted and murdered every year, year after year in the last 10 years, than we have had in our 2,000-year history. So every time you see that Jesus fish, even if someone's not driving so nice, you should stop and say, oh God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who don't have the freedom I have. I pray your Holy Spirit would be with them. I pray they'd have courage to stand and even give their life for the greater good. I pray for them in Jesus' name. Every time you see this fish, you get to confess right, you get to affirm right, you get to pray right, get encouraged right. And by the way, again, for you who are seekers and skeptics, you that are not Christians, or or you that have, again, just the title Christian, the invitation today and all summer is to move beyond some history lesson or some symbol to the living person it represents. What is God saying to you today? This is what God is saying to you. The work of God for you is this, to believe in the one he sent. Who did God send? He sent Jesus Christ. If you have never truly accepted Jesus Christ, God's Son, the only Savior, do this. This is how you move from symbol to encounter. Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God, thanks for this moment. Thanks for our holy history. Thanks for the tens of thousands, the millions, the hundreds of millions of Christians that have gone before us. Thanks for this symbol that reminds us of everything we believe. And would you continue to work out the good news of Jesus in the hearts of us who have said yes and the hearts of us that have have not said yes yet and those in the middle. Just thank you for this amazing, amazing legacy we have. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, who is God, Son, and our Savior. And we all said together, amen. So glad that you're with us today. Look forward to hanging out with you next week as we look at symbol number two in this really interesting summer series. We'll see you next week. 